Morning, Missio. Um, today's scripture reading comes from John 3, 1 through 21. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to, the, to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Thanks, Josh. So as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, uh, if you don't remember, I was just up here. We're starting a series entitled Brother, Sister. And we'll be in this series throughout the entire season of Lent. So if you're not familiar with Lent, Lent is a tradition in the church calendar that just retells the story of Jesus' journey towards the cross. It's not meant to be uh, superstitious or magical. It's just a way for us to embody the story, to get it past our minds and maybe into our bodies and into our hearts and into our lives a bit more. So there's practices that often come with it, ways of narrating that story. And so we'll be doing that together from this Sunday all the way through to the Sunday before Easter or Palm Sunday, where we celebrate Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And what this season does for us is recount the story of Jesus's journey of the cross. And as we talk about Jesus' journey to the cross, as we talk about Jesus and have these encounters with Jesus, this series that we're in, Brother, Sister, 
is going to be looking at one big theme. And we could call that theme, very simply, spiritual insecurity and spiritual security. Spiritual insecurity and spiritual security. Now, that language is borrowed a bit from the science of attachment theory. And the science of attachment theory, or the science of attachment, very simply is the study of how we, as humans, relate to one another. How do we develop relationships? How do we develop trust? How do we develop intimacy? How do we develop connection with one another? And what we're learning from the field of attachment sciences is that we have different styles, different approaches, and different tools that we use in order to develop relationship with one another, in order to develop intimacy with one another and connection with one another. And these approaches, these strategies that we use, they fall on a spectrum from secure to insecure styles, strategies, and tools. It's not a criticism. It's not meant to be morally bad or morally good. It's just kind of a reality that we have different experiences and different tools and different skills. And because of different moments in our lives and different relationships that we find ourselves in, we may relate to one another out of a style that falls somewhere on this spectrum. And we all might do it and we all might change how we relate to one another. Sometimes we relate to ways that are very secure and that have a good sense of our own independence and our own connection and our own self and our own center. And then sometimes we relate to one another in ways that feel anxious and shame-filled or insecure. There is a spectrum of different emotions, a spectrum of different approaches. The Christian therapist uh, Crispin Mayfield simplifies in some ways three different kinds of insecure attachment styles that we can live into and that we can show up in. Crispin talks about an anxious attachment style, where in our insecurity, in our, in our sense of like insecure connection, we respond out of anxiety. And so we're desperate for closeness and we're afraid to lose it. So we kind of like respond out of our anxiety trying to control that sense of connection. I think about it as like you feel like you're losing a relationship and so you text somebody a lot because you're like, oh, if I text them and I connect with them, like then maybe it'll like secure the relationship. There's an anxiety there that motivates it. We can relate to one another in ways that are full of shame, which is a feeling that we have when we are afraid of losing connection. We're afraid of not getting close to somebody, but we're also afraid that if we move close, something will be seen in us that will be judged or punished or shamed. I've been thinking about this one is like, you can see this show up oftentimes in people who are deeply self-deprecating, right? It's kind of like, if I can name all of the shame that I have, then you can't name it first. And so then I'm, I've dealt with the fear that I have, right? It's a shame approach. And then Crispin also identifies that there's like a shutdown approach to attachment, that we need closeness, but we're uncomfortable with the kind of emotions and kind of vulnerability that can come with that kind of connection. And so what we do is we shove those emotions down, hide them away. We interact with people at a brain level or like an achievement level instead of a relational level. I've been thinking about this person as like the individualist or the achiever. They're the person that seems like they have a lot of things going. They have all their things handled, but that's because they've kind of shoved emotions down below the surface so that they are unseen. They've locked them away in a basement. 
we develop these styles or these approaches or we come into these approaches and these styles for lots of different reasons. Sometimes there are direct responses to how we were raised. Maybe you were raised by a parent who created an environment that felt anxious. You were unsure about the consistent kind of relational connection that you would get from a parent. And so it developed in you a kind of anxiety to pursue emotional connection. Maybe it's an experience that you had later in life in relationships or in job environments or in churches that led to this kind of experience. It can even be values and stories that you celebrate develop these kinds of attachment styles. I think about this a lot with the individualist or the person who shoves emotions away. We can celebrate a person who has all their things together and never leans on anyone or never exposes that deep part of themselves to another person. We like celebrate it in a way. And so then we continue to perpetuate that narrative of independence and shut down emotions. Can get these kind of experiences from all over the place. And just as they happen in our relationships with one another, we can have different ways of relating to attaching ourselves to, connecting with God. Just as we can have different kinds of ways of relating to other people, we can have different ways of relating to God. And so throughout this series, the question that we are asking is how do we relate to God? Do we find our relationship to God and our connection to God and the ways that we connect to God, do we find those to be uh, more often than not, spiritually secure? Do they feel stable? Do they feel consistent? Do they feel safe? Or do they feel consistently inconsistent? Do they feel insecure, like they are riddled with shame or insecurity, or that they are shut down altogether? And just like in human relationships, and our relationships that we have with one another, the kinds of relationships that we have with God and the way we connect with God meets that whole spectrum of insecure and secure. And it can be in different ways, in different moments. We can sometimes relate to God in ways that feel deeply secure and sometimes relate to God in ways that feel deeply insecure. And like our relationships with humans, those relationships are shaped by a million different kinds of things. Some of us relate to God the same way that we related to our parents. It's one for one. Some of us, though, I think we relate to God in ways that are opposite of the way that we related to our parents because we had a kind of relationship with our parents and that wasn't what we wanted or it wasn't what we needed and so then we found in God a different kind of relationship or we just moved in the opposite direction. So we relate to God in the opposite way that we relate to our parents. Or some of our ways of relating are shaped by the theology that we learned at church or in Sunday school. We might even know some right answers, but there's something kind of like deep within us that has this conviction, this understanding about how we relate to God. Whatever it is, those experiences, those beliefs, those ideas, they shape within us an understanding, a style of approaching to God. A way of relating to God. I think some of us, in this room, or maybe who are watching online, or who will listen to this later, some of us know what side of that spectrum we tend to fall on. 
It's really clear to us that we live in an insecure attachment to God. We've had experiences that have left us feeling insecure or afraid. For whatever reason, our relationships with God feel full of anxiety, like we are chasing emotion or chasing right actions, or maybe it feels like our connection to God is full of shame, like we're afraid that we will be rejected or judged or shamed before we're truly accepted. Some of us have relationships with God that are emotionally really shut down, like that we don't have a kind of connection to God that allows us to be emotional, that allows us to be vulnerable. It is simply a thing that we believe, a liturgy that we perform, but not a heart that's engaged. So we know that. Some of us are in here and we know that experience. We've had that experience. Maybe you're in here and you hear me say those things and you scoff a little bit at that. You're like, this is silly. Right? Relationships with God shouldn't have so much emotional conversation. It shouldn't have so much vulnerability conversation. Like you're bringing in some other conversations in here that don't belong. And we'll talk about that throughout this series. Like is this, how do we handle this? How do we walk through this? But I, I might suggest that if you're hearing this conversation and you're scoffing at me, it might be a good opportunity to evaluate the way you relate to God because I might suggest that you're relating to God in a way that feels secure, but is actually insecure. Right? We can find ourselves in this whole spectrum. And some of us in here, maybe you just know that you're somewhere in the middle of that, that it's not so I deny it or I affirm it. You're just in here and you're kind of recognizing that sometimes our relationships with God can use growth. That's true. All of us can develop more understanding of who God is. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that all of us can be transformed more and more as we see who God is. I think about the writer of 1 John in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 18, who says, wherever perfect love is, there is no fear. It dispels all fear. So there's this sense, even for those of us who are somewhere in the middle of this conversation, that there is an opportunity on the table for us to grow in an understanding that transforms our understanding, that transforms our image of God, that transforms who we are. And as it is transformed, it gives us an encounter with a perfect love that might dispel fear. That's the invitation on the table for us. Now, how do we do that? How do we establish a more stable or healthy or secure connection to God? It's kind of, kind of an interesting question because we know that God is like a parent. We say that. That's like a metaphor that we use to talk about God, that God is like a father. And Jesus tells us that God is a very good father, a very good parent, like a good parent gives good gifts, Jesus tells us. But at the same time, we don't relate to God in exactly the same way that we relate to a parent. You know, don't have Thanksgiving dinner with God. I don't argue with God about what I should do with my finances. <laughs> I probably do, actually. Right? But our relationship and my connection to God is just different. The conversations that we have are a little different. It's not as embodied. It's not as tangible. And so how do we develop a more stable and secure attachment to God if the relationship that we have with God is different than the relationship that we have with a human? 
Now, throughout this series, we'll talk about different tools and practices. In that journal you have, there's some different tools and practices. In the series that we did earlier this year, there was tools and practices that are helpful for this conversation. But before we even do those things, the first and primary way we're going to develop secure, healthy connection to God is by looking at Jesus. Paul tells us in Colossians 1, verse 15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That Jesus is the exact representation of God, as the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews also says that God has spoken in a lot of ways, but in this final moment, God has made his ultimate declaration through his Son, who is the exact image and representation of the Father. And the author of John, in John 1, verse 17, tells us grace and truth came into being through Jesus. And maybe no one has ever seen God, but God, the only Son, has made God known. We believe that Jesus reveals to us God. What God is like, how God acts, how God operates, and more fundamentally, who God is. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, the image of the invisible God, Jesus reveals to us, to the world around us, what God is like. And so as we see Jesus interact, as we see Jesus move, as we see Jesus teach, as we see Jesus heal, we are watching God move and God heal and God act. As we see Jesus interact with the woman caught in adultery, we see God interact. As we see in the story we read today, Jesus interact with Nicodemus. We are seeing God interact with Nicodemus. And what we see throughout these interactions is a God who is not ashamed or afraid of moving close to us. The writer of Hebrews says this very beautifully in Hebrews 2, 11. He's talking about Jesus in this moment and says, Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are one family. And so what Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And so as we see Jesus move and Jesus interact and Jesus encounter people throughout the stories of the gospel, we see a God who took on flesh, became human, moved into the neighborhood. Why? Because he is not ashamed or afraid to call us brothers and sisters, to move close, closer than a brother. Throughout this series, we will be looking at these different encounters that Jesus has with brothers and sisters. Different moments where Jesus interacts and Jesus does relationship and Jesus uh, knows these people. And as we see these moments and we see God interacting with the people around him, and as we see God loving and God moving closer than a brother, what I think it does for us is it creates in us and around us a new invitation to risk and to trust the God we see displayed in Jesus. I think that is the opportunity throughout this series that will be continually presented to us. It's a new opportunity to risk 
in our own trust, to trust this God that we see interacting. To trust that we are what he says, that we are loved the way that we are loved, and that he is as close as he declares himself to be. Now, in the little bit of time that we have left, this is the invitation that we see presented to Nicodemus. The text that we had read for us today is a really good illustration of this movement and this moment that God has with a person. In the text that Josh read, we introduced to this character named Nicodemus. And uh, you may have remembered Nicodemus for like a Bible story or like a kid's story, but Nicodemus, just for recap, is this Pharisee and religious leader. And as a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have been this highly educated lawyer slash theologian. That's what it meant to be a Pharisee, is that you studied the Old Testament law as a religious leader, but you also studied it as like a lawyer or a legal expert. You would use the law to oversee cases. You would use the law to talk about like Jewish social life and Jewish customs and Jewish political life. Like it was both of those things as a theopolitical nation. So you're a theological lawyer who spends their time studying, interpreting, understanding, and knowing the law. He's a Pharisee, highly educated highly thought of, looked to in society as a person with good answers. And he's a part of a group, Pharisees, who are throughout the story deeply suspicious of Jesus. They're the knowledgeable experts, and they see coming onto the scene an uneducated carpenter slash rabbi gaining authority and followers, and they are deeply suspicious, so much so that they become hostile to Jesus. So he's a Pharisee. And he's also a leader of the Jewish people, which meant most likely that he was a part of what is called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was like a Jewish Supreme Court. There was like 70 or so Jewish Pharisees and priests who sat on the Sanhedrin, and they would, using the law, using the Old Testament, using the scriptures that they had studied as theological lawyers, they would oversee cases, and they would make decisions, and they would make the ultimate kind of decision in case, again, like the Supreme Court. So in this moment, we have Nicodemus, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg of his time. <laughs> I was going to try to use another justice. Like, nobody knows any other justices. <laughs> Right? He's this very important, very famous, very thoughtful person. He's looked to by the Jewish community as a respected figure. I think in many ways, like our own Supreme Court is. Like, he's not a politician who is considered, like, you know, corrupt and uh, outside of connection. No, he is like an appointed leader, knowledgeable and accomplished. He's looked to as a source of guidance and leadership. He knows most of the answers. He has the experience to make those answers count. But what I love about this story is that something is off in him. He's this famous, thoughtful, accomplished human who in the middle of the night sneaks away from his cohort and leadership and positions to have a conversation with an itinerant, uneducated carpenter. Because something in him is unsettled. Something in him is disrupted. Something in him does not sit right. And so at night, probably when most of those strange feelings begin to come to you, he sneaks away to have a conversation with Jesus. I really resonate 
with this character the more that I've sat with this text all week. Not because he and I share accomplishments. We don't. Uh, But I do think as I look at his story, there's something similar to me about it. Nicodemus is a person who knows a lot about God. He's dedicated his whole life to knowing things about God. He's memorized whole chunks of the Old Testament, the Torah. And he's not just learned a lot. This is a person who has accomplished significant things on behalf of God. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's holding the Israelite people into a position of holiness, pushing back against the empire of Rome in many ways. This is an important, thoughtful, high-achieving human. But at night, something sits uneasy within him. I resonate with this because I think in my own life, as a person who has spent a lot of time learning and a lot of time trying to achieve things on behalf of God, I think that I can, when I think about how I relate to God or how I connect to God, my approach, my style, my own personal strategy is head first, do first, heart never. I tend to shove emotions away and to hide them into different places. And I was thinking about this this week. I don't think that emotions are bad. I don't think that emotions are weak. I don't think that emotions are untrustworthy for everyone else. But I often do think that in my own life, emotions and vulnerability just don't have room for them. This is my own approach, my own style, but in my own life, it is my responsibility to carry things. It is my responsibility to absorb uncomfortable emotions. It's my responsibility to carry the weight of those around me, to not ask for help. And I do this for lots of different reasons. I think some of it's good motivations, some of it's probably bad understandings of like masculinity and spirituality all mixed in together. But I also think some of it, as I was reflecting on this, is like I've seen in churches, people be abused when a pastor throws their emotions around too much. So I think there's like all this good motivation in me that's like, I got to hold it in, hide it deep so that no one else is hurt by it. So instead, I learn and I think and I do. And I find myself in this like weird scenario, which is like, if I could just think something through long enough, I will get to an emotionally okay place. If I can just rationalize long enough, then it'll all be okay. Now, if you're like me in this, then you know the reason we do this, the reason we rationalize and think and do before we get to the heart stuff is not because we don't want relational connection. It's because we are desperate to protect it. Because we think that if we can just absorb it into ourselves or we can just do the hard work and we can think our way through it, then we will protect the people on the other side of it or we'll protect the connection and the closeness that we long for. It's not to get away from relationship. It is to preserve it. I'm trying to protect my connection with you. I'm trying to protect my connection with God. I'm trying to protect my connection with those around me, not burden the people around me or even God with the things that I'm wrestling with. 
Now the problem, I think we all probably can see where this is going, is that doing that costs us the closeness we are so desperately trying to protect. I may know a lot of things, but in the dark and at night when I feel lonely, I often wonder, am I known? I know a lot. But if you always are head first, you'll begin to wonder, do people know me? Do I ever let God see me? Do I ever tear down the walls of books and bookshelves and theological systems enough to have like a vulnerable moment with somebody? Am I known? And we may do a lot. We carry heavy responsibilities. We take the burdens of those around us. We absorb the pain of those around us. But well, we never really feel like anyone shares our burdens with us because, truthfully, we've never let anybody share our burdens with us. In trying to protect by leaning forward so much with our mind or leaning forward so much with our work, well, we tend to cost ourselves the very closeness that we are longing for. Now, if you do this, like me, like if this is your style, the way that you approach relationships, you know it doesn't always feel like this? Like most of the time, here's the tricky part, most of the time, I feel very strong. <laughs> and I feel very independent. And I feel very capable. Like that's why we choose this strategy, is that 80% of the time or whatever, you feel like you can handle it. Like you are independent enough to carry the weight. I think there's just moments and I love that this text says that Nicodemus comes at night because I think most of the time it is at night or at least in what sometimes mystics will call the dark night of the soul when it feels like night that there is this feeling in us of loneliness where you wonder if you have been seen, if you have been known, and if anybody else is willing to carry the weight with you. Now this is an inference. This text does not say that that's what Nicodemus feels, but I can imagine and I think it's fair to imagine that it is that feeling or feelings like it that lead Nicodemus to Jesus in the middle of the night. When a man who knows almost everything and has almost everything sneaks away, away from his cohort, away from his friends, and away from his privileges and power to an itinerant carpenter at night, you know something is uneasy. And if you're like this, if you're like Nicodemus, if you're like me, these moments are big. Their moments are important. They're kind of risks. They're these moments of risking in trust. Nicodemus sneaks away to have this encounter with Jesus, and now the question is, how does Jesus respond? Because if you're Nicodemus, it will reveal a lot to you about whether this move was worth it. But if you're a person who tends to shove your emotions away, you know this. Like you've tried to maybe have a conversation with a significant other or a partner or a friend. And it's less about what you say, I think, and it's more about what kind of response do you get from the other that feels risky and weighty. Like if I open that part of myself up, what are you going to do? Will you be there? Will you see it? 
That kind of response often determines how willing we are to risk again. So it is risky for Nicodemus to do this thing, to go to Jesus. And so the question becomes, what does Jesus do? Well, the text tells us. Jesus meets Nicodemus in the night. Away from the spectators and the public eye, Jesus meets him. This is such a fascinating moment to me. Jesus and Nicodemus have obviously interacted before this moment. That's why he's seeking Jesus out. That's why he wants to have a conversation with Jesus. He's a famous Sanhedrin and Pharisee. So obviously they know one another. Obviously they've had some kind of interaction. Obviously Nicodemus has heard Jesus speak. Like they've had some kind of encounter that's led to this moment. So they're not unfamiliar. They know one another at some level. And so I think that's interesting because Jesus could have told Nicodemus to come back during working hours. It's the middle of the night. Come back and see me at lunchtime. It's a far more convenient time to have this conversation with you. But he doesn't. Jesus doesn't shame Nicodemus for coming in the middle of the night doesn't judge him for coming in the middle of the night. Jesus doesn't coerce him into arriving at a different moment or coming on a different schedule or showing up when it's more convenient. Jesus meets him in the night when Nicodemus was willing and ready to meet. It's like a parent or a friend or a loved one saying, I'll be here when you are ready, and then actually being there. I'll meet you wherever you are, whenever you are, at any moment of the day, and then actually follows through on that statement. I'll talk to you at any time. I am ready when you are. Nicodemus goes searching for Jesus at an inconvenient space and finds that Jesus is there ready to meet with him. And as Nicodemus comes at this very strange hour, he comes in the way that you would expect a person like Nicodemus to arrive, as a thinker and as an achiever does. And so he comes with all of these thoughtful questions for Jesus. And I like this text a lot because I feel like you can see Nicodemus thinking, you can see him rationalizing his way to Jesus. In John 3, verse 2, he says, Rabbi, which means teacher. So already he's coming into this moment from a head perspective. Teacher, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do these miraculous signs that you do unless God is with you. This is a big recognition from a Pharisee in a Sanhedrin. Most of the Pharisees do not believe that Jesus has come from God. So his head has brought him along in this moment. It brings him all the way to Jesus, but then Jesus responds to his questions in the strangest of ways. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. This is the place that we get that language from, if you've heard it before in the church. This is the moment, which I think is fascinating. Nicodemus is coming. He's like, I have these intellectual questions for you. Help me to figure out if you're from God. And Jesus is like, new concept, be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? Which is, I think, what we're all supposed to do, actually, in this moment. Like, what? 
What does that mean? So Nicodemus asks that question of Jesus. He says, how are these things possible? Solid question, Nicodemus. And Jesus answered him, you are a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? It's like trolling him. I assure you that we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? He's asking Nicodemus, he's like, you lead and you don't understand what I'm about to tell you? So it's a strange interaction. But then Jesus adds on to it, arguably the most famous verse in the entire Bible. He says, no one has gone up to heaven except the one who came down from heaven, Jesus himself. And he says, just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up so that everyone believes in him will have eternal life. Here it is, the most famous verse in all the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. This moment, when you read that verse within the context of this conversation, to me, it is fascinating. It is this strange, weird conversation. An intellectual comes to Jesus, asks for help understanding. Jesus gives him a riddle and says this. And I think the reason is this, that Nicodemus knows a lot about God. He has rationalized a lot. Spooky. Nicodemus has achieved much. But in this moment, Jesus is telling him that true relationship comes not through just knowing things. Something deeper, something transformative, something life-giving has to happen. Something has to move from your head and into your heart. You need to do more than know about God. You must believe that you are loved by God. That's the big climax of this moment. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If you're like me or you're like Nicodemus, we bring a lot of good questions, a lot of good answers, a lot of good ideas to the person of Jesus. But the truth is, we all know this, that our good systems of thinking, our good rationalization, our good categories for understanding do not deal with loneliness. It doesn't solve isolation. It doesn't make you feel seen or known. It does not connect you with others. They're beautiful and powerful and helpful but they don't build trust. And in this moment, it's fascinating. Jesus does not meet Nicodemus with more theological categories, theological statements. He doesn't meet him with axioms or systematic principles. He instead tells him you must be transformed. And you need to believe deep within you that you are loved. Nicodemus has spent his whole life learning and being accomplished, but here Jesus reminds him that his very first job is to know that he is loved. This is the invitation of belief that Jesus offers to Nicodemus when he meets him in the night. It's not to study more. It's not to achieve 
more. It is to see Jesus lifted up and to know it as a gesture and symbol of consistent love. Now, we don't know exactly what happens to Nicodemus from this moment. We get two more interactions with him throughout the story of John. In John chapter 7, we see him defending Jesus publicly. He doesn't say he believes in Jesus. He's like defending Jesus' right to exist in front of the Sanhedrin, which is bold, but it's not like a full commitment. And then we see him again in John 19. And in John 19, he is helping bury Jesus. And again, I don't want to infer too much from where the text does not speak, but I do think that it is fascinating that a man who snuck away at night to have a conversation with Jesus is seen publicly burying him after his execution. This is an interesting journey that this person goes on. And Mr. as you think about this story, I just have one question for you and we'll close. If you've heard this story, if you've seen how Nicodemus interacts with Jesus, if you've seen Jesus interacting with Nicodemus, I, I would like you just to do like a, almost like a mental exercise. Try to enter the story yourself. If you approach Jesus like Nicodemus did, what do you think might happen? I think these kinds of questions are actually really helpful for people like me who tend to shut their emotions away because you don't ever allow yourself a lot of space to enter the story, to imagine what might happen if you were the person interacting or having a conversation with Jesus. And so what we're going to do as we continue to worship and as we continue to, to gather today, I'd like you to sit with that question. What might happen if you approach Jesus like Nicodemus did? Enter the story. Try to relive it for a moment. It might sound cheesy and strange, but just try it. Place yourself within that story. How does Jesus interact with you? What does that interaction feel like? It's the tone of voice, the gestures, the posture even. And at the end of it, Jesus asks Nicodemus to believe. Believe that you are loved. Believe that as you look at me and you see me lifted up on the cross, that I love you. What is the invitation to believe given to you? I'm going to pray. I just ask you to hold that question, to wrestle through it, to think through it. And then when you're ready, I invite you to this table. Every week we gather at the table. And the reason we do so is because every single week we need another reminder that Jesus meets us wherever it is that we find ourselves. Whether it's sneaking in the night like Nicodemus or in the middle of the day on a Sunday. Wherever it is that we are, Jesus is ready and willing to meet us. And if these questions have provoked anything in you, They've like uh, evoked any needs for prayer or any places where you just want someone to pray over you. Maybe you're like a person who shoves emotions down and you're like, I actually don't know what to pray. Then uh, Max is in the back and he would love to just pray over you. You just tell him, I don't have anything to say and he'll pray with you.
So wherever you are, as you're wrestling through that question, would you, would you think through it, dream it up a little bit, and then bring it to the table and let this moment just be a reminder that Jesus meets you wherever you are and reminds you that you are loved. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your story. As we hear again the story of you and Nicodemus, maybe a story that we've heard so many times, God, would it just speak something new to us? Would it ask a new set of questions and invite us into a new perspective, a new understanding, just a new place of like thoughtfulness today? Not about things we can learn, that's good and right and beautiful, but, but about how we can be encountered and how you want to encounter us. Would that be the big new takeaway today, that you are waiting to encounter us wherever we are, whenever we are, with reminders of love and an invitation to trust you? So today as we hear the story, encountering you, would we respond and trust you anew. In your name we pray. Amen.